The poem you're about to hear is called Fever, was written and is narrated by Denise Dowdle Stent. Do enjoy. Querulous ice monkeys nibbling at my toes. Cold, balmy, desert, parched heat singeing my skin, coursing through my veins, skin burning, scorching firehounds, their relentless barks filling my head, throbbing to the sound of a distant drum, crispy, flaking away, like fragments of paper blowing in the wind, my throat rasping, waiting to be bathed in the cooling springs, Deep earth tremors resonate. Aftershocks settle in my body, crackling and aching for release. The next poem you're about to hear is called I Know. was written and is narrated by Julie Stevens. Do enjoy. My hair projects a message of restless sleep and scampering brushes. My face delivers today's news, spoken and mapped in generous tones. But there's a truth hiding inside me. My freshly washed car dazzles in the sun, dripping froth in tempting pools on the drive. My lawn, so neatly cut, stands to attention marking the path playful feet need to follow. A fiery picture has been painted in my sky, with a burning brush warming a blackened night, but there's a truth hiding inside me. Something's there that you cannot see, latching on to my thoughts wherever I am, full of excitement, ready to burst, or a nervous tremble swirling. It fills me with dread during my worst days or sings an exasperating song, repeat, repeat. I'm the only one who knows. The Level Crossing was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. The wide Fenland skies pulsed with angry storm clouds blowing in from the west. The endless fields, their crops swaying in mass submission to the strengthening wind, were bisected only by the railway line and the road, which ran parallel for miles, then converged right in front of Derek's modest, rather forlorn house. Standing alone in the vast landscape, with only a few shabby outbuildings and the level crossing for company, it was exactly the sort of house a child would draw. Derek stood at his bedroom window, contemplating the view upon which he had gazed for 50 years. The gates of the level crossing opposite his front door were shut tight like clenched teeth. No cars queued to cross the tracks. Only a lone cyclist waited patiently beside a rusty shopper bike, so different from the flashy road bicycles ridden by the Lycra warriors who passed this way on weekends. Her narrow back and straight dark hair, gathered at the nape of her neck, gave her a fragile look. As Derek watched, 
She leant her bike against the gates, then seized them, trying to pull them apart. Derek thought her unlikely to succeed. The scene transported Derek back to a summer's day almost 30 years previously, when another young cyclist, impatient to continue his journey, had forced open the gates so he could cross the apparently deserted railway line. Watching from his kitchen window and with the timetable etched in his memory, Derek knew that the express train was just moments away. As the boy wedged his bike through the gap in the gates and wriggled after it, Derek raced across the road and pulled the boy back from the brink, seconds before the train thundered past, having appeared seemingly from nowhere. Shamefaced and tearful, the boy waited in the hallway afterwards while Derek called his parents and arranged for them to pick him up. Only recently, Derek had read in the paper that this same boy, now managing director of a local packaging company, had automated his factory and made nearly half his workforce redundant. The article criticised him for retaining his six-figure salary and lavish lifestyle whilst putting people out of work. Derek wondered whether he'd done the right thing in rescuing him. Derek watched the girl's futile struggle with the gates until, without warning, she abandoned her efforts, stood back, then vaulted over with easy grace, leaving her bike behind. The express train was due imminently. Finding a turn of speed he had not thought possible at his age, Derek rushed downstairs and hurled himself across the road, leaving his front door swinging wildly on its hinges. The girl spotted him and immediately dropped to her knees. In a gesture which seemed incredibly poignant to Derek, she carefully removed her wire-framed spectacles and placed them on the ground, then crawled forward and laid her slender frame across the track. Derek barely had time to seize her wind-cheater and pull her clear before the express train roared past. The backdraft nearly knocked them off their feet as the girl screamed at the top of her lungs, angry at having been rescued. Unrepentant, Derek gently guided the girl back to his house. Over several pots of tea, he listened while she explained, sobbing, that she had been bullied for years at school. Her only friend had abandoned her, and she had discovered her boyfriend was only dating her for a dare to amuse the bullies. Her dad left when she was a baby, and her mum struggled with drink and drugs. Her name was Lucy, and she had no one to turn to. No hope. Derek gently disagreed, explaining how he too had been an outcast, whose teenage years were a misery, but had found love in this lonely place and treasured it forever. He recounted how, although his beloved wife was dead, he still felt her presence every day in the birds' bleak cries and the clouds rolling through the immensity of the Fenland sky. Afterwards, Lucy often came for tea with Derek on her battered chopper bike. She liked her new school, organised by her mum, once she found the courage to explain. She enjoyed catering college even more and often tested her baking recipes on Derek. When he had a stroke some years later, Lucy visited him in hospital and taught him how to hold a teacup again. Then, when Derek finally left his lonely house behind and moved into sheltered accommodation, Lucy and her children brought him cakes every week and her husband smuggled in some illicit home brew. Eventually, when it was time for Derek to go, Lucy's smiling face was the last one he saw as he squeezed her hand, smiled back and finally closed his eyes.
The Birthday Boy, written and narrated by Helen O'Mahony and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Albie always has the best parties, exclaimed Agnes. Oh yes, came a chorus of voices, followed by a lot of laughter. Maureen the matron thought he was looking particularly handsome in his new blue suit. He had just finished telling someone a joke and was now doubled over with laughter. She smiled to herself and guessed it was probably a rude one. He was a vision of happiness surrounded by friends and family, and it was obvious that he was much loved. It had taken her several weeks to track down some of his old pals from the British Legion. Her efforts were rewarded when she saw the smile and look of amazement on Albie's face as he noticed some familiar faces among the arriving guests. It was heartwarming to see. Once or twice she had noticed him dabbing away a tear as he chatted to them. He had often told her stories from his military days, yet what he remembered most was the camaraderie and the simple things like sharing your last cigarette with a mate. He was never self-pitying or bitter, even though she knew he had made and lost countless friends during those terrible years. Most of all, he had time for others, and although he liked to chat, was also a good and sympathetic listener. Someone had put on dance music from the 1940s, and it had the effect of livening everyone up. Suddenly there were three ladies trying to pull Albie up to dance, and he was having to choose between Agnes, Rose and Elsie. In the end, just like the true gentleman he was, he fulfilled all his dancing obligations before sitting back down again and lifting his well-earned whisky. The music and revelry carried on late into the evening, and gradually the guests made their way home. Later Maureen, surveying the scene of the party, felt very pleased that everyone seemed to have enjoyed themselves. Before going off to bed, Albie had come to her and taken both her hands in his. Thank you, love, for all your hard work, he said. That was a smashing party, smashing. And seeing all my old mates like that, well, I can't tell you. He had tailed off, overcome. Then he kissed her hand and went down towards his room. The following morning, Maureen got up early and was glad to see the sun peeping through the curtains again. She put the kettle on and set off to call everyone to breakfast. First, she stopped by Albie's room and knocked gently before opening the door. She knew at once. He looked so peaceful, and the sun was shining softly on his face. She looked slowly around the room as if to fix the scene in her mind. There, down by the side of his bed, was the pile of detective novels, with his glasses on top. On his bedside table, the half-eaten packet of chocolate digestives and a glass of milk. On the dresser, a family collection of photos, and his medals in a silver frame. On the end of his bed were tied a bunch of helium balloons, which said in jazzy letters, 100 and still fantastic, and finally on his windowsill, his pride and joy, a birthday card from the Queen, with a picture of Her Majesty on the front, in matching yellow hat and coat. In all her years as matron of Greenacres, she had never met anyone else quite like Albie, and she doubted she ever would again. A sob caught on her throat. She stopped, swallowed hard, then took a deep breath and carried on down the corridor to 
to tell the others. The poem you're about to hear is called Phoebe Harris, was written by Jean Fairbairn and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Phoebe Harris, in 1780, dreamt of being a lace-clad lady, but she fell for a faithless lover, which too late she discovered. He was handsome, she was pretty, he betrayed her without pity. He loved another, he made a mother, but swore to Phoebe he was her brother. Phoebe hired a silk-upholstered carriage she believed would convey her to her marriage. But there was no Easter wedding, just a life spent criminally offending. He taught Phoebe to be a coiner, though it was capital to be a poloiner. Deep into crime her life descended, which is why it sadly ended. Three were caught, but two acquitted. Phoebe was young and too slow-witted. Sent for trial in London City, she alone, the jury, found guilty. Condemned to burn by George, her sovereign, and drawn by sledge to her execution. Petty treason grants no absolution, just a traitor's death and its awful prosecution. Poor Phoebe. The poem you're about to hear is called The Sounds of King's Cross from the Birdcage, written by Brenda Gillian and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Your sounds are playing, but our ears are closed. We are distracted and cannot hear. Tis with open minds and bodies too, we hear them calling all night through. Now is the time to hear the sounds of King's Cross, bewitching and elusive, they creep around us. We listen and engage with you as we plop on the sofa. The child builds the bricks, and we hear them fall over. At first we feel the enormous sounds, round and bold, along the tracks, clucking and clackety and clickety-clack, metallic rails there and back, sharp and windy along the track. Rolling wheels you formerly tripping, then screeching to a stop. Across the pavement curves we feel, the sounds bump on the street, soft, not harsh, yet now we feel the rhythmic vibration beneath our feet, Gummy sounds of rubber wheels and cars and buses softly curve the tarmac. Escalating marbles as we go up and down, the sound of a football being kicked in midair, a humble apple ready to fall, a thud on the grass and a gentle roll. Angled sounds of the suitcase striking the asphalt in time with the feet. The sighing wind round the corner we meet as the draft catches hold of every heartbeat. Chopping the wood, drop the box to the floor, closing the window and shutting the door. A packet through the letterbox falls to the mat as the cat flap closes with loud flap slap. The sounds are a symphony, the music of life, catching our attention like the sound of a knife. <laughs> <laughs> 
your sound beguile, lure and excite us into the atmosphere where they wait for those who have time. We have fallen in love with your sounds as they dance. They trip through the alleys to swish in the fountains where they prance. They cross the canal and tiptoe on the boats before hovering to catch you as you feel the sound of their ropes. Feel your sounds as they shimmer around you. Reach out and touch them before they are gone. Cup your hands to curl your car to bear witness that you took the time to listen to places. You felt the sound of flight and the chime. You heard the bell and the harp and the rhyme. You held the rattle in the hands of the child and caught the sound of the rocking horse bow. Sounds are our kingdom and the elements above, the very air that we breathe and the essence of love. Organic and natural they form a living cloak, communicating with creatures before even us. They stroke and surround us wherever we go. As long as we stop and listen, the sounds will flow. An alchemy between science and power. Who knows where they will take us? The point is, will you go? The poem you're about to hear is called Zoom Fatigue. It was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Once a week, just after dinner, all the family gets together for the weekly lockdown huddles that replace our real-life cuddles. We must keep a social distance, so we all require assistance from a software application that has swept across our nation. Last year, no one knew what Zoom was. Now we know it has a few flaws. Help! The call is in ten minutes, and I'm sat here scoffing biscuits. I must go and put some slap on, cos I look just like Charles Bronson. But I can't, as Granny phones me, just as she does regularly. She has lost the Lincoln password, and they cannot be recovered. Can I please resend the Zoom link? So I do, then pour a large drink. Now it's time to switch my screen on, but the place of my reflection has been taken by an old hag. She has bed hair and her jowls sag. Who is this malign imposter? It's me. Total disaster. I must lift my laptop high up and turn the lights down low to stop me from looking worn and aged. Just in time, the call has started. Now we have a right palaver. Granny's stuck on mute as ever. Auntie can't find gallery view and plaintively calls, Where are you? For 40 minutes this goes on, and then our time's up and we're done. I know we could dial in once more, but I'm not up for an encore. My tolerance is wearing thin, and Zoom fatigue is setting in. Gifford and Brent in the case of Lord Welland. Gifford had a new case. He enlisted his friend and partner in crime, Brent, to ingratiate himself into the seedy underworld of London's East End at the turn of the 20th century. The gaslights threw light onto the ladies of the night as they plied their trade. 
Rem deliberately walked up to a small, blonde, fine-featured young girl who had been beautiful, but for the painted makeup on her face, it was overdone. Rem put his arm over her and rested it on the wall behind. He did not want his conversation overheard. Nancy, have you heard anything about John? Nancy's muffled reply was only audible to Brent. Be careful, my dear. Brent then kissed Nancy's cheek and disappeared into the dark alley by a tall, scarred gentleman. He lit a cigar and puffed on it thoughtfully. He watched Nancy for some time. Gifford waited the next morning for Brent to report, but as he waited, he heard news of a murder of a young prostitute. The description disturbed him. Gifford arrived at the scene, and to his horror, it was Nancy's body lying in the gutter. Gifford sought out his friend Brent and told him of Nancy's death. Brent relayed to Gifford what Nancy had told him. She had a lead in the disappearance of Lord Welland's nephew. Brent gave Gifford the note that Nancy had passed to him the previous evening. Gifford read what was on the paper, then clenched his fists. I knew that he was behind it, he told Brent, but how can we prove it? It was him. Gifford sent Brent to the house of Madame Pullman, and he went back to Scotland Yard to think. Madame Pullman was another of Brent's informants. She was a kindly lady who often was seen in the East End with baskets of food for needy families. She and her troop of ladies were excellent at finding out information that the police could not. Brent learned that Neville Howard had been kept at an address in Cheapside, but had only that morning been removed. Gifford was told and the address was visited by Scotland Yard. The housekeeper opened the door, but she said nothing. However, a young boy cornered Gifford and told him that a coach had come for the young Neville and that he had overheard where it was going. Gifford routed his men and they all followed in the directions to Dover. When they arrived at Dover, there was no sign of the coach bearing the coat of arms that the young boy had said was on the side. Gifford's men scoured the area by the port, but no sign of the coach or Neville were to be found. Gifford and his men returned to London empty-handed. Gifford and Brent set about examining the route that the coach would have taken. Brent found a possible place Neville could have been taken. Lady Agnes had a large house a few miles from Dover. Gifford and Brent went to view the house from a distance. As they were arriving near the house, a coach sped past. By Brent and Brent managed to make out part of the crest on the side as it sped past. That's the coach, he excitedly called to Gifford. What Gifford and Brent did not know was Neville in the coach, or was he back at the house? And more importantly, where was the coach going? If Neville was in the coach and it was heading for Dover, they would not be in time to rescue Neville. Caution to the wind, Gifford and Brent turned round and followed the coach. It was heading for Dover. Gifford's horses were no match for the six that were pulling the other coach and they arrived a good three quarters of an hour behind it. The coach was empty and a boat had just left the docking bay. Blow, said Gifford. Just then two figures caught his eye. Lord Wellen, Gifford addressed him. Where is your nephew? Lord Wellen's cruel mouth twisted into a cruel smile. My nephew? Is he missing? Shouldn't you be looking for him? Lord Wellen spoke to Gifford. Brent turned his attention to the coach again. He heard muffled sounds coming from the top. Brent climbed up to see what he found astounded him. Neville was bundled up, rolled up in a carpet, his hands and face tied. 
Lord Wellen tried to make a run for it and made a jump for a small boat that was passing, but Gifford caught him. Safely handcuffed and in custody, Gifford asked why had John Wellen kidnapped his own nephew. Lord Wellen looked straight at Gifford. Money. I need money. My gambling debts. I had gambled my entire fortune away. My nephew on his 21st birthday inherits a large fortune, and if he dies before his 21st, I get the money. Why did you not just kill him, Gifford asked. I could not. I had sold him to a rich merchant in the Indies. He would have disappeared, and no one would have been any the wiser as to his whereabouts, Lord Welland said. Gifford and Brent felt disgust for John Welland, but they were glad to have rescued Neville from an awful fate. They headed back to London, where they charged Lord Welland for ordering Nancy's death and kidnap. John Welland, however, never gave up the name of the person who actually murdered Nancy. You never know if I will need him again, Welland said with his twisted smile, staring straight at Gifford. The Reawakening of Tenenbaum, written by Ellis Goulding and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Wilhelm came from a family of clockmakers. His grandfather boasted they were descended from the most famous clockmaker in all of Europe. As a child, Wilhelm asked him, How do you know? His grandfather laughed and tapped his nose. I have his designs. When you are older, you must find the lost village of Tannenbaum. There he left his greatest creations. I will, Wilhelm promised. When his grandfather died, Wilhelm sorted through his possessions and discovered a box of old maps. All the places his grandfather searched looking for the lost village were crossed out. At the bottom of the box was an ancient map, brown and spotted, but no crosses. The name Baum was circled. He remembered his promise to find the lost village of Tannenbaum and Baum was a good place to start. The following day, he packed his bags and cycled to the train station. A return ticket to Balm, please. The man in the ticket office raised an eyebrow. Why would you want to go there? Nobody ever does. I'm keeping my promise to my grandfather. The train pulled into the station at Balm and Wilhelm stepped onto the platform and slammed the door behind him. The ticket office was boarded up and there was no inspector. The platform was cracked, grass and dandelions grew in their crevices. The old rickety gate was difficult to push open with all the debris behind it. Wilhelm looked for the road, but all he could find were overgrown furrowed tracks leading towards a forest of pine trees. Feeling like a great explorer, Wilhelm walked into the woods. The old branches creaked as they waved in the breeze. The smell of the pine needles and the rustling of wildlife were comforting. The forest was peaceful until a loud rumble in his stomach disturbed the tranquility. His aching limbs urged him to rest on a fallen tree trunk. He took a sip from his water bottle and reached in his bag for a pretzel. 
Checking his compass against the map, he made a note of his position. He was almost in the middle of the forest. The overgrown path became more treacherous. He decided to make camp in the next clearing he came to. Darkness crept closer as the outline of roofs and a chimney honed into view. A small village of dilapidated buildings, moss on the roof tiles, paint peeling from the wooden cladding, shutters hanging off hinges and a bird's nest atop the nearest chimney. There were no chattering people, no cooking smells. The village was deserted. He made camp. Tired and disappointed, he ate a little supper of bratwurst and schnitzel and crawled into his tent to sleep. He woke to the morning sunlight tickling his tent. After breakfast, he set off to explore the ramshackle buildings. He peered through the overlarge window of the nearest house. Inside, a bundle of rags was piled on a chair in the shape of an old man with clogs on his feet. Next door, a mannequin dressed in a gown of ripped satin was lying on the floor. Cobwebs like lace adorned the furniture and a mouse scampered across the flagstones. The houses resembled a folk museum exhibiting oversized dolls. What happened to the people? There was no evidence anyone had lived here. There was one house left to explore and Wilhelm peered through the dusty windows. Two people sat holding hands, heads bowed and still as death. An old man wearing lederhosen and a beautiful girl with blonde curls. Wilhelm knocked, but there was no response. The handle was stiff. The door creaked open. He stepped inside. The house was not as dusty as the others. Wilhelm could not take his eyes from the girl. She was wearing a traditional outfit. The blouse was threadbare and the embroidered dirdnel was faded as were the painted clogs on her feet. In her lap was a large key, a key for winding clocks. The key was too large to fit into any clock he had ever seen. What did it wind? He knelt at the feet of the girl and gently ran his finger down her cheek. She was cold and smooth to the touch like fine porcelain. The girl reminded him of the dancer in his grandmother's music box. At the turn of the key, the dancer twirled to the music. Was this girl like the dancer in the music box? Wilhelm found a lock hidden under her hair on the back of her neck. He took the key from her lap and inserted it, turning it once. Twice. Her hand jerked. He continued to turn until the key would turn no more and he returned it to her lap. With short, precise movements, she sat up ramrod straight and opened her eyes. Welcome to Tannenbaum, she said in a singing voice. I'm the clockwinder's daughter, Rini. We stopped. Are you the clockmaker? Yes, I'm descended from the most famous clockmaker in all of Europe. My name is Wilhelm. Hello, Wilhelm, she smiled. We've been waiting for you.
King Leopold VI sat at his desk reading the headlines. More of the usual doom and gloom. Reading glasses and arthritis was all he had to show for the last 80 years. He had more money than he could spend in a hundred lifetimes, but he wasn't going to live forever. He was hardly living now. If only he was young again, he would be out riding and courting pretty young girls. Those days were long gone. He flicked over the sheets of his newspaper, scanning them for more appealing stories. The photo of a beautiful girl caught his eye. Who was she? He was half in love with her already and he didn't even know her name. The article read, A young clockmaker has discovered the lost village of Tannenbaum. He set out on his quest to find the clockwork people designed and created by his ancestor and was successful. The automatons are over a hundred years old and are in need of repair. Only the clockwinder's daughter still works. Her name is Rini and she has asked Wilhelm to mend her friends. The clockmaker seeks investment to rebuild the village and reanimate the automatons. The automatons were over a hundred years old and Rini looked young. Was this his answer? If the king could pass his thoughts and soul to an automaton, he would be forever young. He gazed up at the old painting of brightly coloured houses, tiled roofs and the chimney stack erupting through the middle of each dwelling. The people dressed in traditional clothes marking time. The king demanded the young clockmaker be brought to him. Later that afternoon, Wilhelm was announced and a nervous young man entered and bowed. From his leather-bound chair behind a large mahogany desk, the king indicated to the artwork above the marble mantelpiece. Do you like my painting? he asked. Very much, your majesty. Is it the village of Tannenbaum? It is. The village and the clockwork people were commissioned by King Leopold III, which means I'm obligated to continue his legacy. Thank you, your majesty. Wilhelm bowed again. But first, I have a commission that requires your immediate attention. Leaning back in his chair, the king steepled his fingers. I understand you are a clockmaker. Would you be able to construct a new automaton? Yes, sir. I have inherited the blueprints and designs. I'm sure I can. The king clapped his hands and smiled. Excellent. From the top drawer of his desk, he pulled out a yellowed photograph and handed it to Wilhelm. This is a picture of me as a young man. The new automaton is to be created in my image. On completion, I intend to teach him everything I have learnt throughout my life with Rini's help. Rini, the clockwinder's daughter, but she is an automaton. Exactly. You are to start work immediately. Wilhelm bowed. I will, your majesty. The work to rebuild the village was underway and progressing swiftly according to his daily reports. The king was impatient for news on his automaton. Progress was slow. His limbs were growing weaker and his cough was more pronounced as he waited. One morning at breakfast, an embossed invitation arrived. 
we humbly request that King Leopold VI attend the opening ceremony for the new village of Tannenbaum and would be honoured if His Majesty would cut the ribbon. A celebration was organised and the King arrived by a royal train to the quaint station at Baum. The platform was smooth and clean. The windows in the ticket office sparkled and the gate swung open silently. A carriage awaited to transport His Majesty along the newly laid tarmac road to the village. The pine trees stood to attention and the horses clocked along at a steady pace. The King waved to the people lining the road as they cheered and fluttered their flags. Dressed in his Sunday best, the young clockmaker stood on the dais next to the mayor. Rini was more beautiful than ever. Her golden curls reflected the sunlight and her traditional costume was embroidered with the King's crest. Holding her hand was a younger version of the King himself. King Leopold VI smiled. Wilhelm had surpassed his expectation. The mayor made a long speech and the King cut the ribbon. I declare the village of Tannenbaum open. Furthermore, I bequeath a fund in perpetuity to provide a clockmaker to maintain the clockwork inhabitants of this unique village. Everyone clapped for joy on hearing the King's declaration. Tired, the King requested some time with Rini and her companion alone. Their house was beautifully furnished and the King sat in a large leather armchair. I am pleased to meet you, Rini. Does your companion have a name? His name is Leo, said Rini. Is it true you are the king? I am King Leopold VI. Wilhelm explained you are not the king we were made for, just as he is not the clockmaker who made us. He is right. Our bodies do not last as long as yours. We stopped. We waited. The clockmaker mended the clocks. Wilhelm made replacement parts for you and your friends, but no one can make replacement parts for me. When I stop, nobody can mend me. I don't want all that I am to be forgotten. Leo, will you remember everything I tell you? The younger version of himself nodded. Then let me begin. <laughs>